happy hour here on WVW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. You can also find us on Emily Kornheiser's YouTube channel as well as the Montpelier Happy Hour Facebook page and our website, themontpelierhappyhour.captivate.fm. Today, I'm speaking with regular contributor Emily Kornheiser. Hello, Emily. Hello, Olga. Good to see you. It's good to see you, too. We have, I mean, we have a lot to talk about, as we usually do. The session, the legislative session, is kind of ticking down. Do you see the the end in sight? Are you kind of seeing the end of the light at the end of the tunnel? Um, well, Olga. <laughs> the fact you had to pause. We colloquially, I don't know if I'm supposed to tell people this, but we um, we do call this the season of broken hearts or lost dreams or crushed hopes. Um, long ago, Representative Treber told me you have to be willing to drown your babies if you want to succeed in the legislature. And this is the this is the season for that. So, because things are getting real and they're either going to pass or they're not. It's it's actually a little bit past that. So, it's already been sort of made clear what will pass and what won't. Okay. At this point, it's like any at any moment things can get incredibly tweaked in a completely different direction and things can get totally thrown into the trash heap. Um and it's often much too late to do anything about it. And so it's, um, yeah, it's a, it's a little bit of a wild ride. Well, good luck. I hope all your babies make it to the end. (laughs) Well, I want to talk to you today about something that I, I personally feel is really important for a lot of communities in Vermont. And yet I think a lot of people just don't know much about them. And those are town charters. And the reason we were going to talk about it today is because Brattleboro recently passed, um, or down voters passed a proposition to allow 16 and 17 year olds the right to vote in local elections. And they're going to put it in their charter. But to have that become codified, it has to go through the legislative process mm-hmm. first. So I'd love to hear a little bit from your perspective as a lawmaker, what what are town charters and why are they important to to the governance process? So regular listeners might remember a couple years ago when we had town manager Peter Elwell on mm-hmm. to talk about sort of the federal, state, and local jurisdiction questions. And so if anyone want to go way back in the archives, they can find that conversation, which um, this is sort of a fun addition to. Yes. Um, char- town charters, and actually not all towns in Vermont have charters. I no, was only about somewhere. like 80 or so have town charters. Yeah. But essentially, and some towns also don't have town plans or in town zoning. Um, Guilford actually doesn't have any zoning, surprisingly. Um, but a town charter is sort of like the constitution of that town. That's the easiest way to explain it. It's the set of laws that structure and govern how town happenings operate. Um, And in order for a town to change its charter, an item needs to be placed 
on the ballot for Australian ballot. It's not something um, in, actually, I'm sorry, let me back up a little bit. I believe that how a town amends its own charter is actually in the charter itself. I believe so too. And so in Brattleboro, which is the only town whose charter I've ever had anything to do with. And so the only charter I know very much about since I'm not on the government operations committee. Um, in order for our charter to change things, we need a ballot item, an Australian ballot item that gets voted on. It can actually, interestingly, I believe be on the ballot at either election, either the November election or the town meeting day election mm-hmm. ballot. Um, but it needs to be on a ballot and go before the voters and pass by a majority. And then it comes like all charter changes to the legislature. And that's because Vermont is a Dillon's rule state. Mm-hmm. And what that means, oh, stalwart and fascinated listeners, <laughs> that means that any <laughs> rights given to town government, any rights that town government has are explicitly given to it by the state. And the state retains any and all rights that are not explicitly handed to it. And that's pretty much in the Vermont Constitution that kind of lays that out. Yes. So that is different than a number of other states where the opposite is true. The munici- in other places, the municipality has any rights that are not explicitly given to it. And um, the United States um, has the opposite structure. So states have any right that are, that, um, are not explicitly taken from them by the mm-hmm. federal government. Mm-hmm. So it's the opposite of the relationship between the states and the federal government. So what that means, um, if you talk to Peter Elwell about it, it means a lot of fiascos when he wants to put up new street signs. But mm-hmm. um, what that means in terms of charter changes is that the town passes a charter on majority and then the town attorney and the town manager and the select board put together a packet um, which goes to the secretary of state and um, is then bundled for the legislature. Oh, that's interesting. I and didn't realize very, it went to the Secretary of State first. Yes, and there are very specific specifications. I'm going to open up my my other device while we talk so I can make sure I'm getting this clear. Sorry, I didn't open it before we were talking. Um, and so then, essentially, we take the charter, the new charter language, and the representatives for that community, sometimes single representative, sometimes multiple representative, as here, um, introduce it as a bill and it looks like any other bill. And so we give the language from the charter chain from the, that was voted on by the representatives of the town, by the voters in the town. We give that to our legislative attorney the same way I would give them language from my imagination or language from another state or however else bills become bills drafted. Um, And we then, and then legislative council drafts them. And legislative council, um, and there's one legislative council that drafts almost all of the charter changes. And right now his name's Tucker Anderson. And if legislative council um, ever felt comfortable coming on the Montpelier Happy Hour, we would be able to talk to them about that, but they don't because they think it's a little too, it's a little too partisan for them. And I respect that though. I do think they would bring 
much joy and depth to our conversation. Today. I agree. And that's why we have asked them to be on the show. Unfortunately, they mm-hmm. said no. They did. So what that means. And so when they're drafting, sometimes they'll notice things that come up and they'll ask for slight tweaks. And we will grant them because interestingly, as soon as the charter comes to the legislature, it's really like the purview of the legislature Hmm. and we can do anything with it we want. That's interesting because usually when something is voted on on a ballot, whatever that language is, that is it and it is set in stone and it does not change. Yeah, so it just becomes like a regular bill and we can amend it as we see fit and then pass it as we see fit. And then that just becomes the change charter for the town. Oh, oh it's a little wild. Yes. Yeah. So <laughs> other aspects of the charter change. So I'm going to read you this really fun section of statute, if that's okay. Yes, please. Okay. For all so, our geeky listeners. And actually, I'll do it one more second. Sorry. One more piece of framing. So when charter changes come to the legislature, they are not subject to any of the usual deadlines that other bills are subject to. It's one of the only ways they're different from a bill. So they're not subject to crossover deadlines and they're not subject to bill drafting deadlines. They can come to the legislature at any point and move through um, much more smoothly. That makes sense, actually. And additionally, the House Government Operations Committee really takes its responsibility as... um, supporters of charter changes fairly seriously seriously. and in the language that they work with as a committee they really hold to the idea that as long as the voters approve this and it is constitutional they will move it through. Mm -hmm. There once it gets to the house floor there are a lot more considerations than that and I'll explain those and we'll talk about those in a minute. So They strive to approve, as I said, they strive to approve any charter change legally approved by the voters of a community and attempt to limit their oversight to the procedural and constitutional aspects of the change, trusting that the voters of the community have weighed the rest. Their work is guided by 17 BSA 2645, which provides comprehensive requirements for the adoption or amendment of a municipal charter. A component of this procedure is the production of evidence that the municipality followed the express provisions of the procedure which is that the clerk of the municipality must, and the clerk of the municipality must deliver these evidentiary documents to the Secretary of State for certification. The Secretary of State then delivers certified copies to the Constitutional Officer of the General Assembly. That's the clerk of our General Assembly. I looked up to make eye contact with you and now I've lost my place. <laughs> um, then, and the committees on government operations to be preserved as part of the permanent and official record. And then these subsections establish that for each charter proposal, the General Assembly receive and have the opportunity to consider the official actions of the municipality. Hmm. And they receive the full charter packet, which includes um, information about the warnings, procedural standards, And then the committee examines the constitutionality in consultation with legislative attorneys. Mm -hmm. So that's how that works. Um, And then it comes to the house floor and different legislators have very different perspectives on charter changes. It's very, um, 
it's a little different from other bills in that some legislators really very much feel that if a charter change passed in a community, that's on that community. Mm -hmm. um, and they don't examine their own thoughts on whether or not they think this thing should be law. Hmm. Other legislators really think, um, would I want this in my community, right? Yeah. Would my constituents want this to happen? And with a charter change like the youth vote charter change or more, um, you know, also this year, the non-citizen voting charter changes that we've seen in some other communities that they've become very, very contentious conversations because people yeah. move beyond the idea that this was the will of the voters in this community, Brattleboro, which is very different from my community, mm -hmm. um, a legislator might think, to like some really deep ethical quandaries for people around um, what voting rights means. Mm -hmm. So just out of curiosity, Emily, yeah. where do you fall on that spectrum as a lawmaker? Now, what I tell myself is um, a charter change is a charter change and people have voted and they deserve to have their vote respected. But I haven't had a charter change come up that is something that I deeply disagreed with yet. So I haven't, actually haven't had that belief pushed very far. Oh, interesting. Um, okay. And so I don't, if it was something that I believe to be like deeply immoral and unethical and bad for the people in that community, I don't, I don't know what I would do because um, mm -hmm. I haven't been put in that position yet. Fascinating. Well, one reason when you put up on, on Facebook that this right now it's called H361, which is the charter change to allow younger voters in the in-town elections. When you put that up on your Facebook page, why I think there was a moment of celebration for many people who have wanted this to go through is that it's been more than one attempt to get it even this far to the to the legislature because of some deep philosophical concerns and conversations just on the community level. Yeah, um, so it took a few years for it to pass in Brattleboro, I think. It mm -hmm. took a few years for it to get warned and on the ballot. And then, um, and I honestly, I'm sorry, I was not tracking it that closely back then. So you probably have a better memory of those events. Um, and then it was, we, last biennium, we put forward a charter change bill and it made it through government operations, but really just by the skin of its teeth got to the floor in time for crossover last year, which was when the pandemic hit and it was in the end ordered to lie because we decided not to pick up um, some of the more contentious bills. Mm -hmm. And so we had to reintroduce it this year. Fascinating. And Fascinating. it took a pretty significant hustle for it to get to the floor again this year. Really? Yeah. And why was that? Were people just feeling that we have so many pandemic issues, we need to focus on those? Or were people just thinking, ah, 16-year-olds at the ballot? Um, I like to think it was a little more nuanced than the latter. This is, ah, 16-year-olds at the ballot. But I think it was more that than um, <laughs> we're so focused on the pandemic issues. Because we, you know, we did something about, like, warning lights on emergency vehicles the other day that, like, took an incredibly long time and I'm still a little unclear on what we did so mm -hmm. um well I guess it passed the house h361 on a roll call a, 
It was quite a debate. It took more than, you know, it took quite a bit of time and it was quite contentious. And interestingly, there were some people who changed their vote on the floor, like who entered the debate, listened to the debate, thought they were going to vote no, and then voted yes, which does, you might like to think we are all open-minded people curious and waiting for the debate points, but in fact, never happens. Nope. Nope. And you've, you've talked about that before. Yes. Um, So it passed 102 to 42. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, what are some of the highlights of the conversation from the floor that that still are kind of staying with you? Um, I think there were some really pretty compelling conversations about brain science hmm. um, and people concerned that, you know, I think anything we have this strange thing in America or maybe it's true other places, but America seems to do it particularly where we have like all of these different markers of like when you're old enough to do a thing that don't actually seem to line up very well with each other. No, so don't. like, you know, you like drive at 15 and you get a gun when you're 14 and or younger and then you smoke when you're 21, but you, I don't, and then like, so I guess, and then you vote in elect, local elections when you're 16, but national elections when you're 18, but you can't rent a car until you're 25, mm-hmm. but you can work when you're 12. It's just, so I think whenever we have, you can join the military at 18. Um, and I remember when we had the conversation about raising the smoking age 21, there was a lot of conversations about you can join the military, but you can't smoke. Mm-hmm. And so I think whenever we get into any of those um, and you're not, and basically at this point in Vermont, you're not tried as an adult until you're 22. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, I mean, there's like a ramp up to that, but that's essentially what our legal intentions are at this point in Vermont. So as adolescence has been expanded in both directions, both younger and older, mm-hmm. I think, um, people get into really interesting debates about like what are people able and capable of making decisions about Mm -hmm. um so I think that was a lot of it Mm -hmm. um I think there's an interesting dynamic that we're in right now where we're really um fairly obsessed as a state about how old we are and how we need to attract and retain young people Mm -hmm. and I think conversations around that were very compelling for people. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's a big part of it for me. It's that I think, and this is very much thinking about my own life and the life of the young people that I know. And so very much like not an evidence-based process here. But um, once you leave high school, life becomes much more chaotic. Mm-hmm. Um, and so any habits and connections that you can build before then, they stick around more, you know? I agree. Um, And so having people really like having those voting dates as a rhythm in their lives, learning, like, you know, having a rhythm of learning about local elections and voting in them, knowing what's going on in your Mm -hmm. town with regards to that stuff really helps people both like sort of cement those lifelong citizenship habits at a time in their life when it's much easier to build patterns because you already have a very rhythmic life. Yeah. Um, and it might help people like feel more connected to their community in a more adult way mm-hmm. so that they um, return or stay. So, yeah. 
and that they they have a voice and they have a way of expressing that voice mm-hmm. um yeah i believe that when the the youth vote proposition was first put before Brattleboro, that's what those who were supporting it that's the argument they made that let's let's help these young people build these kind of civic habits so they can carry them on later into their life yeah yeah the last thing for me that i you know felt um it didn't come up in the debate because i didn't say it and i don't think other people would say it but i said it sort of like earlier in more casual conversations it's like because brattleboro does something does not mean other places in the state will do it mm-hmm. like we are we are brattleboro the one and only i don't think that's our official marketing slogan anymore though i wish it would be because it's I, it, it, it's the um philosophy even if it's not the slogan <laughs> yeah and so i just you know like we had the naked people for that time and we i it's just just because we do it does not mean does not mean your people will do it don't worry mm-hmm. don't worry um so that's the biggest you know that's sort of my biggest point on the charter change that i of course did not make publicly because <laughs> <laughs> it brings up too much bridge jumping kind of motherliness. Oh, um, that's that's precious. Yeah. So I'm really excited about it. I'm mm-hmm. really excited that we could um, get that done. I was in contact with Rio Dimes, um, who was one of the main youth that's advocates right. for this. That's she right. really worked so hard to get this tr- through and actually is driving, you know, is living her adult life right now, um, mm-hmm. is well over 18 and um was driving cross country and so we were in touch via text to see if we could like find a time where she was somewhere with like a stable enough connection that she could testify before the committee and she was happy to see that it passed without her needing to do that um but yeah and so then it moves over to the senate government operations committee which is chaired by our own jeanette white Mm -hmm. who i have not actually had a chance to speak with directly about this recently but i was looking through old newspaper articles to prepare for the house vote and saw her say lots of lovely things about it so i'm hopeful that that things will go fairly smoothly over there wonderful well it will be really fabulous to see this come to fruition because so many people have worked so long and and hard on it Mm -hmm. um so it goes i have one more detail yes please Okay, so, um, and this is an issue that came up in the conference. We've um, had two towns that changed their charter to allow non-citizen voting. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, which interestingly, I don't know if we've ever talked about this before on the show, but interestingly, mo- most municipalities across the country allowed non-citizen voting yeah. before the 20s, the 1920s, not yeah. these 20s we are living through right now. And it was really um, the incredible racism and xenophobia that came with sort of a new rush of immigration in the 20s um, that shut that down. Mm-hmm. And so the, we have a history in the United States of allowing non-citizen voting in local elections. And so, but when we did that in Montpelier um, and Winooski, there was a lot of controversy around whether or not people could then vote in school elections, oh, school board elections. Um, because school board elections and school funding really impact um, the economics and the tax rate of all of the other towns in the state Mm -hmm. because of 
our education finance system, which I think we're going to talk about after the break. Yes. So um, what it was decided is that in Montpelier, school elections were not included in that charter change, but in mm-hmm. Winooski, which has its own school district that it exactly covers the boundaries of that town, we decided it was allowed. And down in Brattleboro, the original youth vote, which happened before Act 46, when we merged districts, um, did include schools and school board elections, but we decided, um, given the fact that this would bring in sort of elections that impact all of these other towns around us, but it right. was best to leave that piece off the charter change. Thank you for bringing that up because I think most people would assume if you can vote in municipal elections, you could vote in school related um, issues as well. But that that is interesting because the school district, which in its way is its own sort of municipality. It's actually legally considered a municipality along with the communications union district and the yep. waste district. And yeah. some of them have their own charters even then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, because that does cross town borders, it, it does add an interesting wrinkle. Mm-hmm. So we felt things. that, um, yeah, voters of the towns of Dummerston and, you know, Putney and Guilford and all of the other members of the school district would need to vote on the youth vote if we were going to move that through. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, who knows? It may be next. Yeah. <laughs> well thank get you for that there, mm-hmm. I said get on out there youth well I'm really looking forward to the the next election we have where youth do vote because one thing we should note with with Brattleboro despite being a very um I would say politically aware and active community we don't we don't always see that in voter turnout you know some I would expect Brattleboro to have a higher voter turnout than it does quite often Mm-hmm. And so I am really hoping that with more young people voting, we will see a, a better turnout. Me too. I did have a funny, I was telling my son who's 16 about this um, at dinner and we were doing some math and, you know, the session ends in a few weeks. And so likely this won't cross the finish line this year. It likely will be picked up next session mm-hmm. in January. His birthday is in January. And so likely the next el- they're actually, it won't change before he turns 18. Oh, the slow. So I think we still steps. have like another year and a half, two years to go. Okay. Before the finish line, so. I'll stop being so excited. Democracy, it is a slow thing. It is a slow thing, but it's something we need to be slow, right? Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when we're not just rallying. We will be back in a moment on the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WBEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. We're going to hear from our underwriters. on WBEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. I'm your host, Olga Peters, and I am speaking with regular contributor and representative Emily Kornheiser and beautiful people. We are so glad you can join us today. Hey, Emily, do we want to remind our listeners of anything? Sure do, Olga. Guess what it is? The views and opinions expressed here on the Montpelier Happy Hour are those of the host and the guests and not the radio station, nor the TV station, nor the social media channels that those are played on, even though social media channels are already 
shielded legally from the opinions and views of their <laughs> listeners by a weird loophole in federal law that should be done away with. <laughs> so listeners, you have been warned. <laughs> Let's dive into something we have talked about before here on the show. In fact, we had Tammy Colby, who is one of the UVM researchers behind the pupil waiting study we're about to talk about. But um, S13, which is a bill dealing with this waiting study, which could potentially change how the, um, I'm trying to think of such a simple way to explain this, Emily, but it's education funding. So it's almost never simple. How the state decides how much it costs to educate students with with different needs Mm -hmm. and um this has been something that we know representative laura sabelia has been pushing for for quite a while Mm -hmm. getting this study up and off the ground to to look at how the how the state looks at funding namely students who are low income uh english may not be their first language and um i'm sorry they're oh rural students Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe the study came to the legislature finally in 2019. And it was then the, the first year of the last biennium was that 2019? Yes. Yes. Was 2019, yeah. And then, of course, with the pandemic, it sort of got put to the side. So bring us up to speed. Where is this waiting study now? Um. So S13, which is not the waiting study, but it is a bill right. to create a task force to implement the findings of the waiting study and look at equitable education finance, um, was voted was voted out of the Senate Committee on Education at some point this year mm-hmm. and um, passed the full Senate, came over to the House was in the House Committee on Education and was just voted out of the House Committee on Education on Friday, Thursday. Mm-hmm. Friday um, came to the House floor where it was referred to the House Committee on Ways and Means. Which is Interesting, the committee you are on. Which is the committee I am vice chair of, yeah. And so um, little random procedural fact about the way things work. Um, We've talked a few times before about how jurisdiction is sort of different between the House and the Senate. Yeah. The Senate Committee on Education um, handles education finance. Mm-hmm. In the House, the House Committee on Education does, just does education policy. Hmm, interesting. And the Committee on Ways and Means does education finance. Hmm. So, okay, playing devil's advocate here. I often hear a lot of folks who are involved with education feel that the legislature hands down a lot of unfunded mandates when it comes to education. Is that in part because those who work with the policy and those who work with the money are not necessarily the same committee? Um, Maybe that's part of it. I think it's actually the bigger part is that the agency of education is a deeply unfunded um, low capacity bureaucracy that refuses to ask for any more money or personnel because of the um, Republican gridlock that our governor has put in place with his promise of no new taxes or fees. Right. But that's me. <laughs> that's why I think that happens. 
Um, Those, that's part of the views and opinions expressed on this show. Yeah. Disclaimer. Yeah. So um, let me like step, can I step like way back to explain how we got in the situation we're in? Yeah, that would be wonderful. Okay, great. So 20 something years ago in 1997, I believe. I believe you're right. There was passed a law in this fair land called Act 60. Mm-hmm. And while there might have been an Act 60 every biennium after that, this it does is not matter. <laughs> the Act 60. And what Act 60 did was completely overhaul how education, public education, is financed in Vermont. Mm-hmm. And we did that because of something that happened before that called the Brigham decision. Yes. And the Brigham decision was a Vermont Supreme Court decision that said our education funding system, our education system, excuse me, mm-hmm. our education system was inequitable. Right. Did not provide an equitable education to all Vermont's children. Basically, and- in very basic terms if you were from a wealthy town that could afford to put more money into the school system you had more equity uh education opportunities than if you came from a town with fewer resources yes and the reason lawsuits of that kind were being pushed all over the country at that point um the brigham decision was decided on february 5th of 1997 um well done thank you and those lawsuits were pushed all over the country at this at that point um, because as we know education is not equitable mm-hmm. all across the country and often in the same city we'll see profoundly different schools from one neighborhood to another and even um or from one town to another because generally in america education is funded by property taxes yes and communities um, with more expensive property are wealthier communities can often pay lower property tax percentages because mm-hmm. their property is worth more um, and raise a lot more money for education. Mm-hmm. So those lawsuits were happening all over the country. In Vermont, the Supreme Court ruling was in favor of education equity because in our Vermont constitution, we guarantee equitable access to education. Yes. Which is not true in most other states' constitutions. Which just blows my mind. And so going back to sort of the conversation before the break about charters and constitutions and the power of the state and the power of the municipality and all of those things, Um, local control only goes so far if you have in your constitution that every child in the state is guaranteed access Mm -hmm. to education. So what's interesting, there's so many interesting things in here, but what's interesting about what happened with Act 60 is that the solution to a Supreme Court finding that we don't have equitable educational opportunity was to create what they deemed to be an equitable education financing system. Right. It was not necessarily a legal or statutory change to an equitable education delivery system. Right. So 
I just so glad you track of that yeah. detail as we go down the terrible money wormhole here. But I think that's a very important thing to consider. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, I, I'm so glad you brought that up, Emily, because so often when we talk about education, we focus on the funding mechanism, which I think a lot of people would argue doesn't work. And I often feel the problem with starting there is because it's not actually the goal. The goal is to have equitable opportunities, which I don't know if we've always defined that very well either, in my opinion. No, I don't think we have. It's a pretty complicated thing to define. So that's where we are. That's what happened. So the way equitable education funding was designed um, under Act 60. And the chair of the Ways and Means Committee at that time was actually Paul Sillo, who's now the head of Public Assets Institute. Oh, right. Um, Just for, you know, how all the, how everyone in the state cycles Mm -hmm. through various positions. Yeah, we Um, don't have the same revolving doors that some industries might have. It's just Vermont's one big revolving door. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It is. It is. We don't even like, yeah, conflicts of interest here are like, another reason to even name them that. So, yeah. yeah. That's another reason we need more population. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, when that system was designed, the new design was basically, oh, sorry, one more framing piece. Mm-hmm. Vermont, local control, education, right? Everyone loves local control. So that's like a cornerstone of education the, funding in Vermont. And the Vermont story. And the Vermont story. Yep. Other cornerstones that we're about to throw into this mix are equity, Mm-hmm. equitable education funding and then the third cornerstone is simplicity because <laughs> when things come Olga is trying just for radio listeners I want you to know that Olga is like actually losing herself about to maybe fall out of her chair laughing when I said simplicity yeah you might not be able to hear it but she's she's actually crying from <laughs> as I hold up my simplicity weight in my hand. So I'm seeing this building go, yeah. Okay, so because if you have local control, then ideally the school budgets are gonna come to the voters and be in the will of the voters. And so you want to be able to explain what you're doing to the people who are voting on these things. Frankly, very little of the voting we do in America is on issues that we actually understand. You like vote for this random person who you barely know and they sort of say some stuff and you don't actually know how they're gonna do anything. Mm -hmm. And then even once they've been in office for a long time, it's kind of hard to figure out what they've actually been doing while they've been in office because government's kind of a black black box. And so the idea of simplicity being necessary for voters to vote is actually like, it's 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 a a nice ideal, but in fact, we never do it in practice. I'm not saying we shouldn't owe people who vote for me. I'm just saying it's like really not something we do very often. But there's this idea, especially with education funding, that 
people need to be able to understand their educational funding formula, because if they don't, they won't be able to like feel the burn of education spending. Mm -hmm. And if people don't feel the burn of their education spending, then we might just like go hog wild and spend all the money on the children and something terrible will happen. Sorry. <clears throat> okay. I, you know, I do want to say one, I've been talking about this a lot lately and I think I'm getting a little wilder and wilder every time I explain it. But these are like, these are, we do the Montpelier Happy Hour, talk about the stories behind what we do. And, and this yeah. is like a really basic assumption that's built into some of the chaos of this model. Yes. And, and I think it's one of the reasons when you talk about ed funding in Vermont, people, you can start seeing the smoke. Yeah. I mean, when you, when the reason I was laughing so hard, when you were talking about people might not feel the burn, I was like, really? <laughs> I, I have yet to see an education budget conversation at the local level where people aren't feeling the burn and it's usually yeah, the burn or when people, absolute confusion yeah um it's also really like i don't know i think that people are capable of understanding complex things mm -hmm. if people are capable of explaining complex things there's that but like i think it i think one of the most important qualities in someone who is in either a, an administrative position or an elected position in government should be to explain complex things mm -hmm. that's like yeah there aren't that many job qualifications other than that actually but that's a good so, one. onward through the complex thing i'm going to explain so we have these three competing interests equity simplicity local control. local control and so what we decide to do in act 60 um was Essentially, every town still gets to vote on their school budget, however they want it to be, whatever amount of money they want to raise to meet the needs of the kids in that district. And then all of those needs, all of those voted budgets, all those approved budgets, all get put into a great big pot. And that is the yield need for the year. A statewide pot. A statewide pot. All the budgets all totaled up together, the budgets that were warned and approved, all get totaled up together, and then divided amongst all the voters in the state. Mm -hmm. And those are the property tax rates for the year. Mm -hmm. Sort of makes sense, right? All, all the voters or all the, the- All the property, all the taxpayers. Thank you. Yes. Um, and so some people pay property tax directly and some people pay it via their landlord through mm -hmm. the rent. But anyone who lives somewhere pays property tax. Yeah. And you know, even when you buy something in a store, you're sort of paying mm -hmm. for part of the property tax of the place you're buying the thing at. Yeah, that's part so of the- So don't anyone ever let anyone tell you that only people who own homes pay property tax. Not true. So. But if we just put it all in a pot and then divided it up, it wouldn't necessarily be equitable because different towns have very different capacities to pay property taxes mm -hmm. because the amount of money that a town can raise through its grand list is very, very different from town to town. Mm -hmm. And so 
we do a few things to fix that up. And one of the ways we fix that up, and there's a few and I'm not gonna get into all of them today, but one of the ways we fix that up is called the people waiting. And what that means is we say, some students are going to cost more to educate and are gonna cost more to sort of run the school. And one of those is kids who live in poverty. And so another is English language learners. And so the amount of kids who live in poverty or the number of English language learners in a community get put into, the, put into a formula so essentially, given that we assume that children living in poverty and English language learners cost more to educate, we have put a weight on essentially the tax rate of those districts that have more kids in poverty or more English language learners. So that the tax rate in that town, when it's divided up among all the towns, will sort of result in a little bit more money towards their budget. And that's called the people waiting. And so what that means isn't that districts with lots of kids in poverty or districts with lots of English language learners get more money. It means that they experience a lower tax rate per dollar that they spend. And that's a really important difference here. What's an interesting piece of all this is that those pupil weights were actually determined um, before Act 60. So the individual pupil weights that we use right now and that are in statute from Act 60 and have not changed since Act 60 were actually the pupil weights that we had carried over from our education funding formula that we used before Act 60 when they weren't used to determine tax rates but were in fact used to determine something called the foundation funding formula, which was actually about sending cash to districts. So previously these weights were used for determining how much spending was needed in a district. And now they're used to determine tax liability mm -hmm. and tax rates in a district. And those are two very different calculations with the same formula because we just carried it over from one statutory situation into another without examination. Sorry, Paul. So, bad choice. Mm -hmm. So, in the intervening 20-something years, a whole lot of tweaks to the system have taken place. Many of them have created perverse incentives for a lot of the behaviors that we were originally trying to prevent. That's what happens when laws are sitting around for a long time. Exemptions build up. Problems build up. One of the problems that has built up is an understanding that perhaps these weights are not entirely accurate to reflect the actual increased cost of educating students living in poverty. One of the reasons for that is it's actually become more expensive to educate students living in poverty as our human services system has been decimated over the last 20 years. There's a lot of other reasons for it too, mm -hmm. including the fact that they just were the wrong calculation in the first place. Yes. So lots of political will and conversation about this tied to the conversation around Act 46 and previous to Act 46 was the idea that rural schools might also be more expensive than non-rural schools, mm -hmm. not necessarily small schools, but rural schools. And so 
Professor Colby was commissioned by the legislature to study the issue of whether or not the weights are accurate and what accurate weights should be. She delivered her report. Her report said, your weights are totally inaccurate. Here is what accurate weights should be. And yes, perhaps you should add a weight for rurality, which is a very fun word to say. Would you like it to is. try it, Olga? No. <laughs> okay. And so... That is where we find ourselves today, trying to figure out how to implement these weights. Mm -hmm. However, one of the sticky points here mm -mm. is that this, if we just implement right away, these are fairly drastic changes, because remember, yes. the previous numbers were not evidence-based at all, and mm -hmm. these are new evidence-based numbers. One of the big challenges that we'll experience is that some districts could keep their budget exactly the same and increase and experience a reduced tax rate. Right. However, some other districts could keep their budget in the exact same place and experience an increased tax rate. Mm -hmm. And that all at be, once, it could be a real All at once, that system. would cause quite a lot of impact at a time when districts are already experiencing much wildness and difficulty. Mm -hmm. And so we have an implementation task force and we are trying to figure out what it should do. Fantastic. Yes. So what stage is this implementation task force at? Is it still in the, the phase of being formed? Has it started looking at some of the potential ways to implement? Like, where is it? Oh, so the bill, S13, this is my outline of the bill right here. This is my doodle in the little corner. It's very pretty. Thank you. Um, the bill is an implementation, the bill creates an implementation task force. And the idea is that the implementation task force would meet over the course of the summer and through the fall to hammer out both an implementation plan and some draft legislation for consideration and passage by the legislature next year, still within this biennium. Um, and so we are trying to, on ways and means, make sure that the task force is considering all that it needs to consider in order to do a good job mm -hmm. and is not considering more than it needs to consider in order to actually get something done. Right. And that is, and that the, it is composed of the right people to have those conversations. Mm -hmm. And that's a hard thing to do because one of the things that we recognize is that we actually didn't quite ask Professor Colby all of the right questions before uh... she took on her study. Um, and we know we didn't ask the right questions when Act 60 was drafted necessarily. Yeah. And we don't want to wait another 20 years to restart this conversation again. So we're wrestling with a number of issues. Um, so like I said, the composition of the task force is really important. Um, we want to make sure that they meet often enough that they can really get it done, but not so much that they um, become mired in their own circular thinking. The thing that happens. Mm -hmm. We want to make sure that it's small enough that people can really like make decisions and get things done and take responsibility, mm -hmm. but not so small that people won't trust the work. Right. Um, and it won't become too driven by people's own ideologies. And we want to make sure that it considers enough things that we're doing that we're sure that we're doing a good job. For instance, one of the pieces that Professor Colby brought up in her study is that the way we actually measure poverty for the purposes of the weights is a not very accurate way to measure poverty yeah. and is a different way than we actually measure poverty 
almost anywhere else for any other piece of statute or policy. Mm -hmm. um, we, the weights for the number of kids living in poverty in a community are determined by the number of children between the ages of six and 18 whose families are on food stamps, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is a measure of how well someone can access benefits, right. not a measure of how much someone needs benefits. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Very strange. And really, honestly, not how we measure poverty for anything else. Um, and the differences between uptake of state benefits like food stamps and welfare in Wyndham County and even Brattleboro compared to say the Northeast Kingdom is quite stark. Mm -hmm. And so we're baking in another inequity into the system if we continue using that poverty measure, for instance. Good um, thanks. The other piece of that that's funny is that when um, universal pre-K passed and even when universal kindergarten passed, no long ago, no one went back and changed the ages that should be considered in this poverty. So it starts at age six, when in fact it should start at age three or four. Right, good point. And okay. we know that families are actually much more likely to be living in poverty when their kids are those ages than they are when their kids are older. Mm -hmm. So we're losing um, poverty counts yeah. in a lot of cases for that. So that's one of the factors that the task force needs to look at. Mm -hmm. um, other factors are how we actually communicate this work in a way that's much more transparent and meaningful to communities um, so that people can actually understand how their education funding happens. Um, we need to understand how the rates and the weights affect non-operating districts mm -hmm. um, and schools connected to non-operating districts. Um, we should just quickly mention non-operating dis dis oh. districts don't have a school actually within their district, they tend to tuition their children to other schools. Anywhere else in the entire country, this would be called school choice. But here we like to use euphemisms like non-operating districts. Mm -hmm. Stratton is an example. Yes. Um, and even Marlboro is an example as well. Oh, okay. For high school. Right. They're non-operating for high school. They right. tuition for high school. Um, and then there's other things about how does this interact with um, special ed and Act 173, which is a, um, a very different funding formula. How does this interact with federal funding? Um, are there better ways to meet the needs of kids in poverty than um, just straight school budgeting? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, well, I find that last question the most intriguing because as we said at the beginning of this conversation, one thing I... I think Vermont has wrestled with with its education system is you have the goal of ec equitable opportunities and then you have the financing mechanism and they're not necessarily working together. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I sometimes wonder if we, if we don't solve that little nugget, will anything else we do actually make a difference? I also have that question. And that is, the question that is also very much at the crux of, can we give this task force so much to do that they never get anything done? Yeah. But how do we actually make sure that the work that they do creates lasting change on behalf of Vermont's children? And so narrowing that question enough that it's solvable in a month or two is, um, feels like really my work for the week. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
Well, thank you, Emily. Unfortunately, we are out of time, but I know. Um, but is there any last thoughts you want to leave listeners with before we, we wrap up? No, and I would really be perfectly happy if you never asked me that question again, Olga, because I never have an answer to it. And I, if I have a last thought, I will just throw it right out there. I don't need an Duly noted. <laughs> <laughs> well, as always, Emily, wonderful to have you on the show. Do you have a toast for us today? I do. I do. In this season, as we emerge from the COVID, as we deal with the final month of the legislative session, as so much actually feels quite so difficult, mm. I want to give a toast to spring ephemerals and how so much beauty can just come sprouting out of the ground, blanketing the world and then disappearing again. And we can just like trust that they're gonna show back up next year. Yes. To the dandelion. To the dandelion and the daffodil. Thank you everyone, have a wonderful weekend. And you can always find us at 2 p.m. on WVEW, 107.7 LP Brattleboro on Fridays. You can also find us at the Montpelier Happy Hour Facebook page and Emily. You can find me, well, not actually me, but ways to contact me on emilykornheiser.org, where you can find links to my blog, my social media accounts, my phone number, and my email address, as well as a Zoom link for my community conversations that I host every Sunday at 11 a.m. Have a great weekend, everyone. <laughs>